into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. reality body is reality uh, alex is like wandering in here in a black cloak and we're about to rip him open and multiple organs are just gonna spill out of his stomach like a whale wants to cut me he's laying in the wants weird, to cut me up the this surgery machine it's gonna be like that movie akira not what's well, good. I was referencing a different movie, oh. but sure, yeah, he looked a movie I saw with Andrew, so I know he's seen it. <laughs> crimes of the Future, remember? Oh, crimes of the Future, right. yeah, huh? we should have asked our guest about that. Yeah, we should ask her about what crimes. do you think about too many extra organs and making them as art and how it's like sex kind of to cut them out? Yeah, it's also kind of like what do you think about that? The movie itself. What do you think about that? What do you think about that? Is that in your book? Wow. <laughs> See, if it was if it was Akira, you'd do the like That's their whole soundtrack. They got like got guys chanting that. Akira kind of fits into what I'm doing here. I'm trying to do a body horror motif mm-hmm. for the episode. And that is definitely with the guy's arm turning into yeah. a bunch of organs and shit. That's what I remember. Yeah. Yeah, I think that happens. Also, yeah. there's a guy named Canada in it. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Canada. Is it? What is it? Takana? Canada. Yeah, it's Canada. It's not Canada. His name is Canada. <laughs> <laughs> I guess in that you're like Jack Flores. His name is Canada. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just depends on how you pronounce it. You know how many people call me that? Every cab driver ever. Listen, Uber Jack. Yeah. <laughs> Bar we going to? It'd be funny. Where are we going tonight? Body is reality, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they put him in a nuclear reactor. They put a boy in the reactor. They had to seal him away because his brain got too big. Opened up the mind explosion, Jack. He gets sucked into a television set. It's a three-hour movie. It's not clear what the plot is, Jack. They whip you. It looks like maybe a snuff film. You go crazy watching it. <laughs> You chase the manufacturer down to a small town in Pennsylvania. It sucked with the whole thing yourself. Now, they call I, it Videodrome, Jack. I, I'm trying to think which movie would be the best way to sabotage the Biden administration by showing him a movie and having him respond to it. I right. think Akira, Crimes of the Future, mm-hmm. <laughs> or Videodrome. I think I guess Crimes of the Future would be the, the most upsetting one for him. That would be the one you'd have to sit Joe Biden down and be like, make sure you try your best to pay attention because it's not like an action movie. <laughs> Right, because they do this. Taking the themes, they do this with politicians. They have them like, uh, oh yeah, everybody's seeing this movie. You should get like Bob Dole had to go see Independence Day, and his summary was pre-written. But if they had Joe Biden, uh-huh. if someone tricked him into thinking, yeah, everybody's. I mean, a lot of people are watching Crimes of the Future, but if it was like even more of a sensation and they want the president's thoughts on Crimes of the Future, and then you just have a clip of Joe Biden talking about Crimes of the Future, and it would immediately. Where do I get this chair? 
It looks like it makes him so healthy. Yeah, it was in trouble digesting at this age. You know? <laughs> the movie to show Joe Biden is by far Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> I want to hear Joe Biden's opinions on Edward Scissorhands. I want to hear he's, he's out there. He's got the clippers on him. They call him clippers. They call him snip hands. <laughs> hard-working, hard-working man. His hair's too big. His hair's too big. He lives in a tower. Oh, Edward was a bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> he's a bad dude. Yeah. Didn't realize you can't take what you don't have. <laughs> and that's what his problem was. They locked him in a tower. They had to set him straight, trimming all the bushes. Showing up with the bushes, trimming them with his hands. I'd love to do a little snippy snip with Helena Borham uh, Kartok as myself. <laughs> Helena Borham Kartok. She's a beautiful, she's a beautiful gal. She's a beautiful, she's a duck on the river. Yeah. He has gone... Two for two, an incredible guy. I, I, now that I think about it, it wouldn't do anything. He's he's indestructible in terms. You, we thought Trump was, but it's it's gotten even worse. He's like the crimes of the future man is for organs. He yeah. is for gaffes. Right. Yeah. This week, a perfect being. He has. Have you guys seen these? There's one where the, he was talking the, about the teachers. You see this? Yeah. The, this? Well, what you're describing isn't a gaff. It's like a senile old man, literally not knowing where he is. <laughs> He turns, so he's at some uh, fucking conference for teachers or something. They're like, that's me. Mr. President, thank you for coming down. And then he just like is spinning in circles <laughs> in front of like a full crowd. And they're like, give it up for the president. And he looks so scared. And it's actually really sad. <laughs> but he says, he's like, well, we got a lot of work to do. I got to get the Southern out of it. Yeah, <laughs> so no, my, you're veering off into it. We, we got a lot of work to do. Uh, I know you, or you got to wave at me. He just like stops and points at, uh, we assume, I don't know who, we don't know who it is. Somebody who has to wave at him. Yeah. And he's like, you got to wave at me. We go, um, we go back a long way. Uh, Is there anybody there? Do you think? Because there's a few clips where he's talking to ghosts, where he turns around like he shakes a ghost's hand. It could be. This is a man who does not know where he is. (laughs) (laughs) He just says, he says, uh, yeah, we go back a long way. And then there's just a pause, and there's laughing, uncomfortable yeah. laughing, and he says, uh, she was 12, I was 30. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody just keeps laughing. What the yeah. fuck? I don't know what The roast master. No, he just admitted to a crime, I, right? Yeah, I don't know what the charitable interpretation of that is. He's riffing, man. He's riffing up there. He's killing. Yeah. He is killing. The thing is... He when... was a punk, she did ballet. <laughs> <laughs> I think... You know, okay. Now that maybe boy. it was well. It's the fact that we couldn't see the person, but let's say it was an old lady. I think that's what he was going for. It was an old lady. Uh-huh. She was twelve back when they, you know. And then he's an older. He's man. saying that's but, how old he is. Yeah, he's saying like we worked together a long time. Maybe he's not talking right. about intercourse. He's just saying we worked together a long time ago. It was, you know, so long ago. She was twelve, but I'm still so old. And I'm here's sure. the thing about Joe Biden. I think he okay. is rarely talking about intercourse. Yeah. yeah, I think we kind of put that, that on way. him. Right, yeah, he just falls into it mistakenly. He's just trying to talk about a guy he knew with scissors for hands. <laughs> Alex, how's your body? Hey, everybody, welcome back to the show. It's about damn America. I'm a sickly, young-ish, frankly, middle-aged man. <laughs> uh, I went. I got an endoscopy this week. I released yeah. a podcast, and I thought the best way to do that would be to put up pictures of me going under for, for <laughs> surgery. 
Yeah, <laughs> put the microphone all the way down your throat. That way we can hear what's going on in your Get stomach. Get my first reacts to yeah. stomach acid. No, okay, so uh, because people keep messaging me with genuine concern, do not be concerned for me. Save your energies for things. Uh, I have early onset GERD for some reason. <laughs> hmm. GERD, uh, g- uh, gastrointestinal fucking reflux disease. I, I got, I I get like more reflux than you should and it's fucking me up, but I have a case called silent GERD where I don't know what's happening and so I let it get really bad. And it's something that happens when you house too many huge hoagies and drink 40s every night. And uh, it expands your stomach like a balloon and then the little valve on top shoots acid into your throat. Uh and so I had to go get that checked out because usually this is a problem for people older than me. And also because I can't feel it, I don't know if I'm like actually dying, but I went in there and they said I was fine. So and you have, you have uh, silent acid reflux. You can't feel it, but it's just eating away at the inside of your head. You know how you'll eat a food? You'll eat like fried chitlins. What's, it, oh, what's the Jake Flores food of choice? Oh, I eat all sorts of shit like that. My mom's a southern lady. Yeah. I you eat chicken livers and shit. Yeah, but burrito fried chicken finger liver. Uh, I made menudo last week. What's menudo? It's made from tripe, dude. Oh, bro. Yeah, it's for like hangovers. I had oh. uh, this Mexican thing. <laughs> this is something I did while I was having these symptoms, which is why this happens to me. I got this thing at a res- Mexican restaurant called like, I forget what it was called. <laughs> it, it's you, it, it's, it's the word for the pot. And they bring you a big like cauldron of meat. <laughs> Wow. In a spicy red sauce. And you ate the pot. Why is it every restaurant or bar you're at, you'll get you always get a big bowl of something. (laughs) You got a watermelon one. (laughs) Yeah, of tequila. A watermelon filled with tequila. I like trying new flavors, and so I'm always pushing boundaries. And that's why I'm dying at thirty one. Uh yeah, and so I what were we talking about? Your endoscopies. I actually and I'm not trying to Yours sounds much worse, uh-huh. but remember, like a year and a half ago, I was I was still living in D.C. and I had a full time job, so I would make ribs every week. Yeah, and that ended up having some consequences. But I thought I had swallowed a bone. Uh huh. So I had to go to the hospital. Oh, I remember when yeah. this happened. I hate to say this, but we've talked about this on the show before. <laughs> right, but <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> But I figured out since then that it wasn't a bone. It was what you're. It was just too much like fat. Incredible. Fatty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you also have. Uh, you can't have milk or cheese, mm-hmm. which would be a death sentence for me. I'd be done for. I haven't been able to have coffee for a few weeks. I'm having one now, but that's because I record like seven podcasts a week, and it's just frankly you got to fill yeah, up the tank I don't sometimes. Know how you would do that? Without- um, it's been hard. <laughs> just getting real sleepy with it, but uh. Uh, anyway, so I got, I went in for this very basic procedure, but, uh, it's also re in, in, invited me into the wonders of the American healthcare system, folks, which we all know and love. And we're kind of talking about today a little bit. Isn't yeah. that right? Has it been fun dealing with the healthcare system? Okay. There's a long story here in my back and forth to go get a very basic operation where, uh, I am on what is known as Medicaid. Are you familiar? You're yeah. here. Yes, uh, the thing you they, they put you on when you don't make enough money to, for your job to keep you alive. Yeah, um, I, I had an incident a few years ago where me and my wife together were making too much money to be on Medicaid, but also not enough money to really like buy any kind of health insurance. So the I was sweet like, spot. 
as it's called. <laughs> I was just too poor to live, but too rich to be on Medicaid. Yeah, too uh, rich to die. That's how it was, baby. And so uh, I've had the same doctor for like five years who is, and I don't think he's going to hear this, so I'm going to say this, a quack I used to get Adderall from. <laughs> <laughs> what if he quack? listens to the show? I'll be, uh, I, that was a joke. It's a comedy I mean, show. If there is a doctor, if there are doctors who listen to this, there's like a nine out of 10 chance they're quacks, but right. Uh, well, and by that, I mean, every time I went to see this man, there's an old Jewish man on 14th street. He, uh, he has a private practice. Oh, my new page. Oh, I'm not into the accent. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to him getting the Patreon episode and getting excited. <laughs> <laughs> he works alone in an office with, uh, he's had, uh, an old woman and every time I come in I check in with the woman and then she screams at him down the hall about like I can't live like this anymore and he's like just check them in your job is to check them in leave me alone I'm checking the discord <laughs> <laughs> And so he's like serving 10 patients as fast as he can because he works private practice to make like as much money as he can possible. So like I'll usually see him and I'll, he'll be like, what's wrong with you? And I'll be like, my head hurts. And he'll be like, yeah, get out of here. And then give me whatever I ask for. Um, he, as of last year, fired this woman he's been fighting with his entire life. And I know that because it became impossible to contact him. <laughs> I've been so trying she to... she was holding it all together. Well, she does all of his paperwork because he's yeah. seeing a hundred patients a day. So <laughs> he doesn't like, I, I think he can do them, but like knows he'll like save time if he just doesn't. So he doesn't answer his phone. And so I haven't been able to call and go to the doctor because I've been having this problem for like five years. I just didn't know what it was. And so I keep going and being like, I'm, I have sores in my throat and they're like weird. Um, and so I uh, have been calling for six months and no one's picked up. And I finally figured out I can still get an appointment on ZocDoc. So I showed up and, and was like, you didn't flee the state. You're still here. And he's like, yep, I've been here. And I'm like, what happened? And he's like, I got rid of her. <laughs> we had to get rid of her. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. And, uh, and he's like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, I think I have cancer or something. And he's like, weird. <laughs> and then uh, he's like, what do you want from me? And I was like, I just need a referral because the insurance won't cover any visits without a referral. So I got him to write on a piece of paper. Uh, he, they wanted an electronic referral. And he gave me like a doctor's note, like used to get out of school, like just like a signature and then like a tummy drawing on it. With a sad face. Wow. <laughs> and he was like, give this to them. And I was like, I think they want something on the computer. And he's like, no, they'll take this. <laughs> Did the tummy have abs on it? <laughs> yeah, it looked really hot. It was a really sexual tummy. Um, That'd be weirder. <laughs> and so I went to the, the gastro, which is who looks at your tummy when you've had too many hoagies and you've hurt yourself. And uh, I went in and I was like, I've hurt myself. And they were like, oh, wow. Well, where's your referral? And I was like, it's right here. And they're like, we don't take that. And I was like, great. <laughs> <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I paid out of pocket to see that doctor and they were like, you can probably get insurance to pay you back later. And I was like, well, I know you're covered, so I'll get them to pay me back. And then whatever this doctor says, since he's covered by the insurance, will surely cover whatever procedure he wants to do. Uh, and then I saw him and he was like, yeah, I get a procedure. And then they were like, you got to get your primary care doctor to sign off on the procedure. This is what the healthcare system is like in the United States. Yeah, what the, I've lost. What the fuck are you talking about? It's like having a petition. 
This there, is so much. There is like three clerical boundaries between me getting like a camera jammed down my mouth. Just put it in me. <laughs> it's like real- I have no gag reflex. <laughs> I've been practicing at home. It's just really basic stuff, and they can't get it done. And so I've spent all week on the phone with like three offices where uh, I got the doctor who does not answer the phone to call me by emailing and then finding his cell phone, and then he emailed me back that he sent a reference, and it turns out the insurance doesn't accept his reference at all because he's listed as a specialist and not a primary care doctor, so he's like not even supposed to be there, and he's like, yeah, they don't pay me. I've been seeing you for free for years. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and so like that opened up a whole other bag of worms. What the fuck? <laughs> Why? <laughs> I guess he just felt bad for me or something. I was just like, that's very kind of him to see the Medicaid people when he's not <laughs> Isn't this the guy that you just called a quack, though? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You he's, think he's crazy? He's like he's actually a hero. Free. He's an everyday hero, and we don't deserve him. <laughs> hero with meat and cheese, <laughs> giving me the Adderall I need because I can't have coffee now. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, I eventually did so many phone calls they let me get knocked unconscious and uh, looked in my body, and that's been my week. Well, what organs did they pull out of you? I mean, what did they? What? They, they took a bunch of biopsies, so they took chunks of like my throat and my esophagus and my tum tum. Are you like, is anything happening to you? Well, here's the thing when you go to the doctors, um, and this is again part of like the relationship between uh, 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 insurance and then like a bunch of private actors who don't communicate with each other, is they give all this data to me. So they took blood work from me and then just gave me the data, and there's like some black numbers on there and then some red numbers. And I'm Uh, like, I don't know what this means. Yeah, what is that? I know like if you owe money, you're in the red, and if you have. Red is like bad, money right? For your blood, I've received no new information on this since they gave me the paperwork. I just know I have some red numbers and some black numbers, uh, and that can't be good. That's scary, man. Uh, and then I went and I uh, got the surgery, and they gave me the pictures of what my insides look like, and I'm like, "What am I looking for?" <laughs> that's cool. Are they cool looking? Here's my verdict, and that is your the tum the stomach looks like a brain. Yeah. It's, it's the, got wrinkles in it like a brain does. The brain of the, the guts. Yeah, because they sent me, they sent me like, all right, your throat looks like a tube. I'm like, that looks like a tube. That Check. Throat tube. And then they got to the stomach and I was like, well, this looks like a crinkly bag. And so I had to look up like, is that what they look like or am I like dying? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I was like, oh, okay, I think that's just what they look like. But also, I'm not a doctor, so maybe it is bad. <laughs> it's cool that they give you the pictures and you just go home and I actually really liked that part. Yeah. I, I saw yeah. him, I went to go get uh, lunch at my old work after uh, getting out of the hospital because I was right next door and I liked their food. And my manager, who's from India, still works there. And he's like, you know, they knocked me out for that in India. Uh, or I got an endoscopy, but they didn't give me anesthesia. So I was just on the table and they jammed a camera down my throat. That's why I asked. Because I, th- somebody told me that that's like the only way they can do it. Because you'll choke if they put you under. But they um, might have just been like their doctor lied to them. And then they just passed on the information to me. I don't think it hurts. It probably just feels like you're di- like eating a whole snake. Or no, something. but did, did they put you under? <laughs> yeah. Oh, so I heard. Sorry, this is just some medical knowledge I picked up on the street. Like, I didn't know this was true. I just heard 
they have to fucking shove it down your throat while you're awake because if they knock you out, you could choke on it. So somebody I know oh, got damn. one, and then they were just like, yeah. So basically, I just laid there like a fish on my side and was like, wow, like the whole time. That is Ugh. not true, and I do not know why they did that. I watched a video of it on YouTube, and it gave me nightmares. I was, was like, oh, I'm going to have to do this someday, and it's they just spit roast you, and you're just like, was he being I used should... in a Cronenberg movie against his knowledge? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Body's reality, baby. They're putting organs in. I think the story I remember is like something from fucking a million years ago. I can remember like a comic telling me or something. They were like, the guy was so homophobic, he didn't want to get a colonoscopy because he didn't want anything to go in his butt. So he was just like, just shove it in my throat. And then the doctor's (laughs) like, we can't put you under if we do it like this. And he's like, it's fine. So then he's just like getting this camera just shoved down his throat. And he's just like, whoa, not gay. (laughs) (laughs) You know how long the intestines are? They're like 30 feet long. (laughs) Camera's taking like a road trip through your body. Right. My buddy, um, comedian, Marty Litwak, he had injured his middle finger and they had to, you know, check it out. And he has an x-ray now of his middle finger. It's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's what's up. Damn. I wish I injured my middle finger instead of hurting myself through too many tasty beers. <laughs> yeah, dude. That sucks. How's your, how's your physical corporeal being, Anders? Uh, I don't want to jinx anything. Anders what are your ailments, Anders? I Say do it on have... the health podcast. <laughs> I do have to go back to Northern Virginia every few months because I have this guy, um, which I lost. Anders is showing us a retainer. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's like technically an appliance. And by the way, a quick anecdote. When I uh, was podcasting with Anders and Jake a month ago, I opened my mouth and was like, does this look normal to you? And then they both screamed. (laughs) And it wasn't because anything was wrong. It was just because they saw my tonsils and they'd never seen tonsils before. It's always (laughs) weird to me that someone looks like a cartoon cat. Can I see him again? Are you going to scream again? Because it made me feel othered. I'll Please. Okay, I'm going to do it right now. Ah! <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you just have the, like, everybody has that little raindrop thing. No, not everyone. A lot really? Of, most people get tonsillectomies, so most people don't look like a Looney Tune. Like I'd, like, I'd like to see the numbers on that. I'd like to see <laughs> the most people numbers, please. I mean, I can do, do I have it. I can make a really... <laughs> Let me get the flashlight back up. <laughs> I can make a really gross noise. <laughs> wow, looking normal in there, Jake. It's looking I, good. No if, hangy thing? If I went into a doctor and I just started going, yeah. do you think I, they could give me uh, something? Another case of the ring. <laughs> got the, 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 the grudge. <laughs> this was actually the biggest hit uh, that I had in clown school. Was Somebody's going to hate that noise. I'm sorry. <laughs> you just keep if doing anybody it. anybody has, yeah, you can do it. I have a feeling this entire segment has been making someone throw up. I yeah. understand that my whole story was very confusing, but that's my point, is that uh, it sucks getting any kind of service in uh, this goddamn country. Yeah, I mean, the American healthcare system is a Kafka-esque nightmare uh, to the extent that it's the oldy thing that almost caused class consciousness in this country. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. just that uh, you could die at any time for no reason. <laughs> and uh, owe a million dollars to the bank while it's happening. It is yeah. so bad. Yeah, I I have insurance just to did not go to the doctor. Or I, I what I, does that mean? I I've given up trying to get stuff fixed. Uh-huh. Um, so I just have the bare absolute minimum, and then yeah, that's why you're like in a lot peak of physical shape right now. 
I don't want to know. As I don't want to go and get checked out. I don't know what want to know what the the problems are. I'm probably fine. What are you, what are your ailments? Tell us your ailments. Yeah, we'll just do it for you. Oh god. Okay. I have well the this thing I paid uh, when I had better insurance in DC. Uh-huh. I got I finally got my my jaw fixed with these retainer things. Sure. And if I don't do that, then it's going to be like permanent fucking. You got like an expander. Damage. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And if I don't do that, then I'm fucked. But I had like such a brief window of having the right insurance. And now I don't have the insurance anymore, but I paid, I already paid for it. So right. I have, but I have to go all the way back to Northern Virginia every few months to get the thing adjusted. What? Yeah. <laughs> you have to go to Virginia to do this? Yep. That's okay. where my doctor was. Because oh, I was living in DC. Okay. It, yeah. What you have to do is find a uh, semi-illegal old man in Manhattan <laughs> who will yeah. just do whatever you ask of him. Right. Because it's, and that's the thing about orthodontics is that everything they fix um, like there was a tooth out of alignment when I was 16 and I got, it was a huge deal. My mom got a new rung of insurance. She's like, you're getting braces. And I'm like, could we not have done this five years ago? Cause I was like a junior in high school. Uh, and the tooth got fixed, but then it messed up something else. And then that messed up another thing. And it, it's like every th- little thing you move in your jaw, it uh-huh. fucks up seven more things. I mean, now if you do it right the first time. I guess, in theory. <laughs> I know a lot of people got orthodontistry and then that, that was it. They just really? got the one thing. Those lucky bastards. Those lucky bastards. I mean, it was probably my fault for not wearing the plans correctly for several years. But And I, we're going to get into the personal blame part of medicine soon in this interview. <laughs> but also, Andrew's I late. do think it's, you did something wrong and it's your fault. And that's why the, the culture is toxic. Yeah, yeah. It all... Is that I see it that way. It all comes back to me. <laughs> People are going to be so triggered if they have like serious uh, issues and they're hearing about us. I think we can only do this segment because no one is that sick. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it would be very sad if it was if it went the other way. Uh, One of us was like legit, like fucked up. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, like uh, if, if, if yeah, but you're a comedian, you get to make jokes about it. If you're oh yeah, and you'd have them ready if it was like you're a whole thing for you. Every comedian gets cancer, and they do like the cancer special or whatever. Uh-huh. But like, you got to do like the Tignataro. I have GERD special. <laughs> when I was going in for the thing, I was like, if I have cancer, will they give me a special? Because I'll have to produce and work a lot harder at stand up than I've been doing. Yeah, dude. I've been all in the podcast zone. I'm not ready for a special. It'll be inspiring. You'll do Marin and stuff. Yeah. I want to inspire more than been, I do now. I've been thinking about doing a one-man show about restless leg syndrome. Yeah. That would be heroic. Right. Someone's got to take on that. that could, there's no shows about that in Edinburgh. Restless. A Lee story. <laughs> <laughs> All of your shows should be called a Lee story. Yeah, I don't know why I said it, uh, just your last name. That's not really a thing. A Lee, a Lee joints or things. Jake, you, know, you were just in the Olympics. Spike. I was in the Olympics? Yeah. Huh? With your incredible body, what are, what are some oh, complaints you have? Oh, I don't have any. I'm like a perfect specimen. That's really of impressive. Health, yeah. That's <laughs> no, weird. The I, doctor is like, I go in there and he's confused. He's like, we've never seen this before. Ever. I, I thought for sure you'd have like a reflux story because you're always doing this. <laughs> oh, I'm like constantly. I don't, there's something wrong with my body. I I don't know. I don't know what that is. <laughs> I have like really fucked up throat stuff i don't um he ain't smoking smoking stuff smoking's probably not helping can i do what yeah you made it can you do that the question is can you do that i can but won't well i think i just did uh no man i got that sleep apnea machine unlistenable i have to (laughs) i have to just fucking blast 
humidified air into my nose and mouth all night in order to like not build a pulmonary disease slowly every night. When did it, when did that start? I've had it forever, man. I fucking, I don't know if I've ever talked about this show. It's fucked up. Like I knew I had it like 10 years ago or something. Cause like everyone in my family has this insane snoring. My thing. dad has it. And like, You'd sleep next to somebody, and then they would just like take a video of you and show you in the morning, and be like, "You're dying!" Like every yeah. thirty seconds. Like, I literally you- c- couldn't sleep in a, the same room as my dad if we would like, you know, go on a trip or something. Like it, it was impossible to fall asleep. It's insane. It's like the loudest thing ever. It's not yeah. just snoring. It's Isn't like, it like choke- night terrors. No, it's you're choking. Yeah. So what happens is like your palate doesn't sit right when you're like asleep. So yeah. you, you're unconscious. So you can't like. Sh- adjust it consciously so it sinks back and then like if it sinks back far enough when you're doing honk honk shoe you know honk honk shoe honk honk shoe honk honk shoe time you honk when you honk it just seals up so (laughs) what happens is your brain needs REM sleep which is like when your brain goes into maintenance mode basically and you get uh, about five-ish cycles of that a night if I remember from fucking psychology school this was Ben Franklin's whole thing was he would just get the REM sleep I get was that a thing he did yeah he would take like 10 short naps and never oh, sleep. God. Yeah. There's just people that have like experimented with like not sleeping normally. I forgot what it's called. Which by the way, you definitely don't need that other part. Your body also does. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You've definitely cracked the code. <laughs> yeah. Normal human being notorious Ben Franklin. Um, all of his hair fell out and he looked insane. Cool. Looks like a human owl. Take I advice that from that. I thought just male pattern baldness. No, it's because he didn't sleep right. Was it not lightning? Why are you, as a man, trusting a bald individual? I don't, I don't trust him. I don't trust him. So he, but like, what happens is like you. So you need REM sleep, right? But if you you have sleep apnea, you, you fall as soon as you fall asleep proper, you start to choke, and it it interrupts the cycle of the REM thing. So you never get a full REM cycle and you need to get like five or seven, like to properly feel rested. Oh, you just have one that tries to start over and over and over again Uh. and you never get it. Plus you're not getting oxygen because you're like die and then you go (gasps) like that and Uh then you wake back up. It's so it's like really bad for you. So you like spend eight hours like get feeling worse instead of better. And if you if you have I figured this out, but I like didn't have uh, you can't just go to the doctor and be like, I have this thing. You have to go through all this fucking At night, it's tape. like I'm coming out of a pool for eight hours. Yeah. And like, uh, if you don't fix it, like you just have a stroke, like it just leads to pulmonary disease. People get fatter. You get unhealthy. Your lifespan just, you know, you could track like, oh, I'm going to lose 10 years off my life if I don't fix this right. thing. But you have to go fucking see. I literally went to some weird Jewish guy in Greenpoint who was just like, you don't have, you're too skinny. And then he looked at my oh, throat. Man. He was like, wow, you got a fat man's throat. And then, <laughs> skinny with a fat man's throat. But then it took, the ideal body. <laughs> it took years of like getting my insurance consistent enough to stay like the same insurance while I could, it went through like the, I had to go sleep in a laboratory. It was disgusting. The place that I slept and had the wires hooked up to me and stuff one star on Google Maps. I don't know why it was rated. Why is it uh, rated? So that's I, like when they rate like the Statue of Liberty on Google Maps. Yeah. <laughs> there are probably like better, like higher class ones, right? That are more expensive. I don't know. Probably, but the thing is like I had Medicaid or whatever. Yeah. So they were like, you get this one. Right, right. right. And well, yeah, but that's why that one got one star. One star. They did experiments on me for 15 years. <laughs> I was raised with blinders like Mewtwo. 
Uh, I went through this whole thing. And then when you finally get, like, you finally prove to them that you have sleep apnea after you do a take-home test and you go sleep in the laboratory, they give you a sleep apnea machine or a, a, a CPAP machine. It's called a Dream, it's called a Philips Dream Station 2 is the one I have. Oh, yeah. Which is, you can play There's Sonic. a lot of good oh, games on Dream yeah. Station 2. <laughs> it's insane that it's called that. But it comes with a microchip inside of it. And the microchip tracks whether you use it every night. And if you don't use it every night for the first like few months, they repossess it because they've decided that you've been like irresponsible and aren't <laughs> using the machine that they paid for enough. And then you have to do the whole fucking thing oh all over God. again. I did it. So like I eventually they go, okay, you just have the machine. But that's like insane insurance, yeah. like austerity shit, right. you know? Yeah. And then you know, I do that every night. It's, it's to hedge bets against the people getting a Dream Station 2 just to beat the system. Well, otherwise. So they can flip it. You saw what happened on Black Friday. Everyone was beating down the doors to Circuit City to get their games. Phillips Dream Station 2. People getting shot in the checkout line for their Dream Station 2s. Yeah. It it it's kind of like if it's the one like the one my old man has, it's kind of like a Darth Vader noise. Yeah, Does I mean, dude, I just it looks like in Dragon Ball Z when they're in like the water tank between fighting. You yeah, have that thing over your face and it's just yeah, yeah. all night. Goku, Goku, nice. Goku had many dreams in the Dream Station. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he had sleep apnea, you know. But does yours need distilled water? Yeah. Yeah, that's my my dad. He has in like he always has to go out and find distilled water in every grocery store. It's like, what the fuck? Are you, the I dream kinda, station only works in a frictionless environment. Vanders. <laughs> I kind of think that distilled. might be bullshit. Like I'm like really? looking into it right now. I think it might be like a liability thing. Like if you don't oh. use distilled water, like if you use distilled water, if if you use other than distilled water, it might violate your ability to like you know <laughs> say that the machine fucked up or something. Ah, I'm not sure because I use. Poland Springs, which is like question mark. Well, I don't think you should use the water in the sink here. <laughs> I'm definitely not using the sink Don't water. use the glue water. It has <laughs> to be. In your dream machine. It has to be New York City tap water. No. <laughs> Eric Adams approved. Did you become a pizza overnight? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. But then that, that did fix it for you? You know why the dreams are better in New York? It's because of the water. Because <laughs> of the water. That's how they made all the all the rap songs. <laughs> yeah, man. I feel better every night that I use it. I mean, sometimes I come home and I'm just exhausted and I forget to. And then I wake up and I feel like shit. I'm like, oh, right. I have to do this every night of my life or else I'll feel bad forever and then have a stroke and die 10 years early. I do think you're one of the best people I know at not getting sleep. Yeah, I sleep pretty erratically. <laughs> You're like a Buddhist monk that way. They kept you awake for three days to prepare you for your life of uh, 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 wantlessness. I'm kind of like Ben Franklin, people say. Yeah. <laughs> You're like the new Ben Franklin with hair. <laughs> yeah. With more hair than he ever had. Yeah, new and improved. He never had a beard. Yeah. They would never put Ben Franklin on an Eve 6 album. Oh, that's right. The album came out yesterday. Go yeah. get it, everyone. Get vinyl of me. Until I saw it, I really could not wrap my mind around Jake being on an album cover, and it has changed the world since then. Well, like a big one, too, you know? I mean, there's like dumb, like, oh, our friend's band made a... Yeah. But like, no, but this is like an international record release. It's going to be in like every hot topic. It's <laughs> <laughs> a picture of me. I'm interested to see how it ties into the themes. I haven't listened yet. It's the themes good. of like having a cool t-shirt. I listened to I it. I can't sleep at night. Last night when I was bartending, when everyone left the bar, I just played it alone. It was really good though. Yeah, Mr. Yeah. Darkside been 
pumping that tune. Yeah, they you. found a real like power poppy place. Shout out, cool. Eve Six. Shout out, shout out. Hello, Max. If you're listening, the album's good. Good album. Album cover is even better though. People are saying. Oh, yeah, we had another thing that we were going to talk about. Maybe, sh- maybe we can save that after. I'm, I know I'm just like. Uh, Should we get behind the the curtain here? Let's do the interview now. Let's get into the interview. If you have not picked up yet on what we're talking about today, it's health. (laughs) You're too dumb to understand the following conversation that's about to happen. (laughs) We're going to interview Alex's uh, illegal doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Let's play that now. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. Um, Co-author of the new book, Health Communism, out on Verso Books. She wrote along with Artie Vierkant. Uh, We were going to interview... Beatrice Adler Bolton about this new book. All right, here we go. Interview time. Okay, we are now joined by co-author of Health Communism and podcaster from Death Panel, Beatrice Adler Bolton. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, okay, so right off the bat, uh, let's talk about the book. Um, I read a little bit of it, get a chance to finish it. But uh, I think I get the gist of what's going on here. Can you help us with some basic com- concepts as we dive into this concept? Health communism. First off, what is, uh, what is health, I guess? <laughs> that seems to be the where you start with the book. Can I ask a follow-up question that we've somewhat covered on this show, which is, is there any overlap with health goth? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Important. Definitely lots of overlap with health goth. Interesting. Um, Deleuze was kind of sure. a health goth. <laughs> but I, I think not the kind of health goth of, like, thinking of someone, like, in Nike, like, head-to-toe in an annoying Lower East Side bar, more like... <laughs> Goth in a hospital, health goth. Uh, yeah, like, like you're dying. The yeah. goth is kind, like Mia Goth. Yeah. There you go. Um. Yeah. I mean, health, right? Like we we th- we think about health as kind of like a personal characteristic, like a thing that individuals have, like whether you're a healthy person or not a healthy person, whether you have a disease or not or whatever. You know, whether you're mentally healthy or you're quote unquote, you know, abnormal in some capacity, but. The fact of the matter is, is that, and, and what we're essentially arguing in the book is that that idea of healthcare and health as a kind of intrinsic uh, personal quality, that that's just a bunch of bullshit. Um, and <laughs> that essentially health is determined by so many other things that you really have no control over. Like, so can you really tell someone, um, you know, that they're unhealthy, right? Like if it's their job that's making them sick. But under capitalism and, and and the way we do things, particularly in the United States, um, it's someone's fault if they're sick, and it uh, it has everything to do with a kind of personal destiny. But the the, the truth is is that that kind of idea um, that exists only in a way to just be advantageous towards the commodification of healthcare. It doesn't actually describe what it's like uh, to be a person that lives under the kind of extractive 
labor conditions, um, the, the kind of environments that we live in, for example, our housing, you know, the price of housing affects what your health is going to be. So part of what we're trying to show in this book and what we're really arguing is that we should be thinking of health as a kind of collective thing, as a thing that, you know, within the kind of professional public health like framework people would maybe call like the social determinants of health which is you know the kind of political social and structural things that have way more power over you know what your life is going to be like and uh, whether or not you're going to live a long life or a short one a comfortable one or a brutal one um, but that part of the thing that's really important about capitalism is hiding the idea that health is um, a population level thing that we're all responsible for and placing it instead on the individual because I mean it's it's conducive to labor discipline towards keeping us divided keeping us um, you know with the boot on our neck so to speak um, so what we're trying to do in this is really challenge people to think about their health differently um, politically but also as part of a larger whole um, and to not assume that maybe because you don't have a diagnosis of some kind that you're quote unquote healthy. Um, there is really no such thing as, as health under capitalism. Yeah. That's what I kind of, I liked about your book is because that's, that's why always popped out at me as like a weird absurdity. Whenever people talk about health or like mental health or whatever, this abstract idea of normal seems to be just implied but no one can yeah. ever really define it or pin it down. It's just uh, something people just go, what? It's just when you're not sick or whatever. <laughs> um, and it's just like a bizarre thing. Um, Anecdotally, I, I've found that the, uh, the personal approach to health that we have now has led to the sickest people I know having the most disdain for doctors. <laughs> that I've seen. Like, the people who have to go regularly are like, this guy hates me. Are you talking about yourself, Alex? I am not. Right. <laughs> I know where you've been. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a common experience. Um, definitely, for sure. So, uh, we use some Marxist terminology and, and, like, analysis here to get into how the definition of health and the social determinants of it sort of center around this uh, group of the population known as the surplus population. Yeah, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, totally. I mean, um, here's the thing, right? Like, the, the surplus population is an old idea, um, and it's important to understand that we're using it a little bit differently. The surplus population is something that's even, like, written into Marx. Um, but uh, in the old days, this used to basically just describe people who were unemployed kind of waiting in the wings to be thrown back into employment um it's people who are you know thought of as a burden rather than a kind of productive uh maybe taxpaying person um for example um but you know fundamentally um the surplus class in our contemporary era encompasses so many more people than um people who are unemployed and it encompasses people who are chronically ill, people who are disabled, people who are um, gig workers, people who work in non-traditional industries, like within like creative fields, like who 
are comedians or who are artists <laughs> or art handlers or people, you know, the kinds of people who are working, you know, in industries where you're supposed to be paid an exposure and never given benefits like, and you know, for your entire career, Just those kinds of frameworks. As I hear this, do you guys yeah. know we're surplus? I think I might be a surplus. Yeah, you guys definitely are. Um, yeah. I feel more essential know, than ever. <laughs> part of it is, is that, uh, you know, the surplus is really important to capitalism. It's kind of thought of as this uh, group of people who are disposable, <laughs> right? Who are um, maybe not like worth the kind of investment uh, that would be needed to support the surplus, like a robust self- like welfare state. Like imagine if we gave everybody full health coverage that would really change the amount of leverage that non-surplus workers would have, right? Like if we think about so much of our union organizing, like fights for healthcare, they happen at this really small level because they often happen within the individual workplace. So part of what we're trying to kind of construct here, right, is is that we're so used to on the left thinking about things in terms of like workers, right? Like everything's oriented towards, I think, a model of thinking through the identity of the worker as a kind of cleavage point or a point for initiating solidarity or action. And uh, that leaves a lot of people out who are not, you know, considered traditional workers, maybe people who uh work in the home or who work under the table or uh, who work in the service industry, right? These are like very different um, kinds of modes of being that, that don't have the same kind of leverage. But the precarity of people like us in the surplus class, like that's really necessary because it's important leverage to have the precarity there basically as a threat. You know, if, um, if under capitalism, the idea that everyone could be a billionaire is the carrot, the surplus class is the stick. It's the it's the punitive. It's the punishing side of it. It's it's the side that's cruel um, that treats people basically as as worth only um, you know what they can sort of prove to workers um, about why it's better to sort of stay in your shitty job under shitty working conditions than be unemployed, then be disabled, then be out of a job, then be out of the sort of traditional workforce and you know, I think so much harm can be done um, just through the denial of solidarity between workers and non-workers or traditional laborers and people who are sort of operating on the margins. Um, and really what we're saying here is like, if we want to do anything to fuck with capitalism, like we're going to have to move past this kind of worker, non-worker division. And the surplus class, you know, is a is an idea that's like, hoping to try and encompass everyone because even if you're not surplus now, the fact of the matter is, is that your labor conditions are shaped by the fact that you could become surplus at any moment. So the threat, you know, in and of itself, like that is a huge, if not the most important component of uh, labor discipline. Yeah, I thought this was an interesting fleshing out of the surplus population idea because, like, I mean, if you want to be like really uh, orthodox Marxist about it or whatever, I mean, mm-hmm. the idea here is that. Uh, there's a bunch of people who are going to be unemployed, and you know, having that as a constant like counterweight, uh, the employer, the capitalist can always negotiate down wages because if you have a bunch of people who really, really want to work for you, 
no right. one is going to be able to demand a higher wage. And then you've got this like weird liminal outer bubble thing at all times that keeps everything in place. And that has to do strictly, you know, when you read Marx with like the dynamics of labor and, and um, just people needing money to stay alive or whatever. But like when you put it in terms of health, I mean, it is it's the same thing to some extent. It's just maybe less focused on the uh, the dollars and cents of it. But like, I mean, also another thing about needing to work is that you first and foremost do it so that you can fuel your body and stay alive. And I always think about this when you talk to like libertarians or whatever, who will say, you know, what you're like, you're free. You can do whatever you want. What do you mean? Like (laughs) if you work for someone, you're choosing to work for them and you go, I live in a body and it like demands food all the time. That's why I work at a target and the McDonald's inside of the target. It's not because I want to be there. You know, it's because like you have to keep fueling this fucking thing. Um, so that puts you in the the liminal space the same way that, that, you know, the labor argument argues that you're there. Well, if there was uh, something in the book that I found really interesting that you write about how like the surplus population or class, uh, actually does produce a lot of, of, uh, capital, um, through this, uh, analysis by, um, Marta Russell, I believe her name was, uh, she's late, Mm -hmm. but, um, uh, can you talk about that? I explain how, uh, they extract money out of um, the surplus through, you know, finding cures for things and nonprofits and uh, et cetera. Absolutely. Um, and I guess quickly, just to like roll back to what Jake said real quick, though, like, um, you know, the idea of having to, you know, work to fuel your body is definitely true. But the the inverse is also true that so much of our healthcare is about like making sure that we can show up to work or like look mm-hmm. appropriate at work, for example. So, you know, it's 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 a it's a kind of a circuitous, like two sided thing. Um like a very shitty snake eating its own tail, you know, the health side of it and the labor, they're always connected. Um, And, you know, I I think this is really, uh, that's what underlies um, the money model of disability, which is uh, Marta Russell's idea. Um, She was someone who was writing and working at a time where um, Marxist critiques were not welcome in the disability community. They're still pretty unwelcome, I'd say. Um, Her biggest thing uh, that she's probably most well known for is this idea of the money model. But it's also, you know, uh, a critique of the Americans with Disabilities Act um, from the left. And this was something that she started arguing right after that law passed. So, you know, it was pretty unwelcome. These kinds of ideas are things that you won't necessarily find in a lot of other things about disability. Um, But the idea is basically that, you know, even people who are deemed unproductive, like a non-worker, that that person's body creates jobs and creates a whole economy around it, right? Like if you think about like, for example, like I'm, I'm disabled, I'm chronically ill, I've got like a ton of shit wrong with me, right? Like if I even wanted to start listing it, it would be exhausting and pointless. But every single thing that I have to do to maintain my health, right? Like that's someone's job to provide that service. And beyond that, you know, for people who um, are not like me, who like get to live in the community, people who live in nursing homes, and it's not just old people, it's young people like us too, disabled people who still like live their entire lives in uh, warehouses, like institutional facilities um, or psych hospitals and stuff like that. You know, when you're looking at that kind of economy of scale, what happens is the person becomes 
more valuable, not as the patient uh, or as the body even, but just the body in the bed um, taking up space. Because what happens, for example, in nursing homes um, is that, uh, say, you've got a nursing home that's got like 1,500 beds. For each bed that is full, the federal government's going to pay, you know, a certain amount of money, whether that's through Medicare, whether that's coming through Medicaid, whatever, you know, there's there's money that is sort of state money that's attached to that process. Um, and then it's up to the company or the private equity firm running the nursing home to try and make a profit from that. Um, and it's similar to the ways that you think or, or hear about, like, for example, how much money uh, prisons are given per day per prisoner and then how they try and like... <laughs> make a profit by reducing like the amount that they're spending on food down to like 10 cents per prisoner per day and anything that they can squeeze out becomes a kind of a a surplus profit in the way that we think of our labor generating surplus profit but it's generated around the the body that's being um serviced or maintained or housed in some capacity so you know this kind of idea of like oh well you know, disabled people, they're just like unproductive. They're just a drain. They don't contribute to society. It's not very true if you're looking at things from a pure economic perspective. But the way that we talk about things, you know, we we talk about uh, the surplus classes not being an economically valuable or generative group of people. And um, I think trying to hide where the money comes from is a really important kind of way of pretending that the surplus class has no power uh, and almost doesn't matter to capitalism. But if you look at the billions and billions of dollars that are moving like through all sorts of health infrastructure, whether that's like hospitals, pharmacies, motherfucking big pharma, like even just like your uh, all of the wellness bullshit beyond that, um, doctor's offices, shit like that, you know, that that entire relationship that each person has to all of the things that they rely upon for care like that has this way of generating you know quote-unquote value for the economy um but the way that we frame things right is that if you need this kind of care if you need this kind of support um that you're a drain that you are somehow you know creating problems economically and not you know just participating in like regular ass life, like acknowledging that there's no such thing as like a healthy person and a sick person that we're all, you know, just in various sort of stages of needing like different types of care and and who is considered sick and who is considered healthy has so much to do with who has access to healthcare in the first place that, you know, we're kind of in this situation where we've just created this huge lie about, um, you know, essentially a whole part of the population just not mattering when they're really actually very central to how our entire, like, country thinks of, like, its wealth even or its knowledge beyond uh, the sort of, like, individual care relationship. I mean, in the United States, we take, like, the sort of healthcare industries and innovations so seriously as a kind of nationalistic product, and yet we treat the people whose bodies produce that as waste. Mm. Yeah, um, not sure entirely how related this is, but I just wanted to knock it out so I didn't forget. Do you, can you describe this term "extractive abandonment"? You use a lot in this book. Yeah. Um, so this is uh, 
Sorry, I feel like I'm like just uh, ranting at y'all, but basically, uh, you know, podcast. this is that's <laughs> true, right? <laughs> the people paid for this, it. This is us taking Marta Russell's idea, which is really looking at disabled people specifically and trying to knit it together with ideas that come from like the the prison and police abolition movement specifically. Um, I don't know if y'all are familiar with like Ruth Wilson Gilmore's mm-hmm. work. Um, so her idea of organized abandonment is uh, what we're riffing on here. Um, and so what she talks about is how, you know, states basically use things like building up the prison industrial complex as a way of like funding all sorts of uh, capacities of the state. And uh, we do the exact same thing through healthcare. You know, we build the state through creating uh, capacities for our healthcare system to harm people as, as we were talking about, uh, like just literally minutes ago, you know, it's really common experience for people who need a lot of healthcare to feel like doctors treat them like total shit, right? Like, and so part of that has to do with doctors being individual bad actors, but part of that also has to do with the system that's designed to essentially produce the conditions in which doctors will be out of attention, out of time, out of patience, you know, out of options, even by the time you're the person walking into the exam room with them. So, you know, we can we can look at people as bad actors, like, in a vacuum, but that's never going to, like, take us towards a kind of, like, political critique that challenges capitalism. That's just, like, calling out people for being shitty. And, like, people are going to be shitty regardless of, like, what political economic system we're under. So we could say, like, that we're only going to be free once everyone in the world is, like... <laughs> perfect and not a bad person anymore or we could think about you know maybe what is it that we're doing that's putting together the kind of conditions where someone who's seeking care is so guaranteed to experience harm abandonment abuse you know part of it is that we're building these things this way you know we build prisons to fill them we don't build them to just like look at them so you know it's a it's really kind of a way of trying to help people understand that, like, it's not just that, like, healthcare is profiting off of you. It's that, like, without profiting off of you, the state doesn't really have a lot of other ways of moving money around itself. You know, we don't fund shit anymore in the United States. We could fund, like, really robust federal social safety net protections, but then what incentive would there be to work for Uber if that were the case? This is all not even covering health insurance, which is literally like yeah. a separate bloated organism just sitting on top of the healthcare industry, moving money around almost like the same size. Well, you, yeah, it's described in the book as, as kind of a financial um, sector, right? Am I? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like a fine, yeah, speculative, uh, yeah, parasite. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, think of how much fucking time we wasted during, like, the last two election cycles debating whether or not, like, private insurance companies deserve to exist or not. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I mean, imagine if we spent a fraction of the time debating, like, how much healthcare we all deserve. You want to get into that, Anders? Uh, Yeah, yeah, well, one thing I was really, this made me think about is, you know, the way we categorize disability and I was looking up, you know, which terminal diseases at a certain point you meet a threshold where some of them become disabilities, but then some others don't. And Jake was saying, you know, uh, you get kicked out of your insurance. Um, if you have a 
someone in your family member with certain diseases. And it's this kind of like arbitrary um, system. Uh, and it, it was occurred to me recently that like, I don't think of myself as, as disabled, but when I, I was diagnosed as a little kid with a bunch of different developmental and learning disabilities, but I, I don't think of myself that way because I, I can work. Like I'm in, I'm in the surplus population now, if I needed to, which I kind of do, I could join the labor force. Um, you could join the army. I could. Uh, well, I don't know if they would let me in. <laughs> they probably wouldn't let you in. They probably like tell you to fucking get the hell out of there. Yeah, <laughs> because of their no clowns rule. No, you'd be a super soldier. I believe in you. <laughs> I think you'd be really great at it. Anyway, what were you saying? <laughs> uh, I mean, just like the way we. How much? I mean, we kind of went over this a little bit, but like, how much does that uh, the ability to reproduce capital have to do with the designation disabled or non-disabled? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's so fucked up, right? Like there are so many different ways of thinking about disability and the way that we normally, I think like the average person thinks about disability that doesn't relate at all to how, um, like you become legally certified as disabled or as someone who can qualify for social security disability insurance or SSDI, which is when you're, like declared disabled by the federal government. They say, you know, you're never going to recover and, um, you know, we're going to put you on disability. You get social security, you get access to Medicare. There are also programs um, for certain people who can't qualify for SSDI called, uh, for example, like social security, uh, sorry, supplemental security income. And that's at a state level. And the reasons why these like other programs exist is because to qualify for SSDI, you have to have worked a minimum amount of time to build up work credits mm. before you can even apply to be disabled. So like if you don't pay into the system, let's say you are disabled as a child and when you're 18, like it's clear, like there's not a job that you can find that's going to accommodate your disabilities and figure shit out and you decide to apply for SSDI. Well, if you haven't like paid into the system by paying employment taxes, you don't qualify to apply for SSDI that those rights of being declared disabled at a federal level, like that's not something that you're entitled to. Um, it's really in a way, a safety net program that's designed only to support people who have already proven themselves as workers. Um, and part of that's because this is a really conservative law. I mean, when we think about disability, people tend to think that it's like always liberal or whatever. I mean, I don't know. What do you guys think of like disability activists? Like what political side of the spectrum do you think like most disability activists in the United States over history have been on? Oh, I would put them all on liberal. Is that not the case? No, not at all. Not at all. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, the ADA was... I mean, Helen Keller yeah. seems like the prime example. Helen Keller's yeah. like an exception for sure. You know, they're definitely like prominent, like liberal or even sometimes like leftist, like well-known disability figures. But actually the majority of the disability rights movement in the United States for a very long time was dominated by libertarian ideology. Really? So, yeah. Yeah. Um isn't it's libertarians' whole thing, though, kind of like if you're disabled, we throw you into a trash compactor? Isn't that like the general thing they're working with? <laughs> well, you would think so, right? But like the idea is the dignity of risk and that everybody deserves access to the dig dignity of risk. That was the argument they used to sell the ADA. I mean, like the idea was that 
disabled people are discriminated against by not being allowed to be workers. And they argued that, mm. you know, like it was that really sucked. fucked up because disabled people were made dependent on the state a chance to be workers. And yeah, like things are really different now than they were then. And back then, if you were disabled, you likely lived like most of your life in a congregate institution. Like if you were diagnosed with a learning disability as a child, you probably would have lived your entire life in a, in a hospital school. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and probably all of us now would have probably maybe been hanging out like in a fucking asylum for all we know, if things had gone a little differently from 1950 to 1980, but amazing podcast content. Would have come out of that. So <laughs> cool to hang out with you guys in the asylum all day. The podcast right? asylum. Right? <laughs> well, then, but, um, sorry. Uh, well, I was going to, while we're on this topic, I mean, this is maybe a little bit out, out of left field, but it made me really curious reading this. And so I looked up, um, like the percentage of disabled people in America who are employed and it is now at 19%, but it was at, according to like official statistics, but that went up by like an entire percentage point, which is like a lot of people over the course of the past like two, two and a half years. Do you have any insight into why that has, has happened uh, since the advent of, of COVID? Oh, definitely because of remote work accommodations, for oh. sure. You know, like this is the kind of thing that like disabled people have uh, been asking for for a long time as an accommodation that most people like their job would have denied it before. And uh, like, for example, like the ADA is reactive, right? Like I don't have like ADA rights um, because I'm on SSDI and I've been declared a non-worker. Um, but if I did have ADA rights, let's say I like worked at a bank and that bank was like, damn, you can't see anymore, Beatrice. Like, we're going to fire you because you can't tell the difference between a $5 bill and a $20 bill. I could sue them and I could take them to court and I could say that they, you know, basically fired me instead of offering me reasonable accommodations for not being able to tell the difference between money, for example. Like, that's the only way that you could exercise your rights under the ADA. It's not like I can be like, oh, don't fire me or else the ADA, or I can be like, oh, the ADA says you have to do this. Basically, I can ask for something, a boss, an employer, a school, whatever. They can be like, fuck you, no. And then it's on me to spend the money and the time to take that person to court in order to exercise my rights. It's called like a reactive model. Mm. So, Like an Avengers situation. Yeah, you know, everything's happening after the harm's already done, you know, after the person's already been excluded from whatever context they were in. Um, and so really the way the ADA was sold, right, like in Congress, on the floor of Congress, they were like, this is welfare reform. We're going to like reduce the amount of people who are on public supports. We're going to reduce the deficit, all these disabled people, they're going to get back to work, right? Like they're going to get to work. We're going to facilitate employment, like whatever. But of course, like when this law was being passed, they were really worried, you know, like we don't want to give people too much power over their boss. So like the way that it was constructed as a model of, you know, civil rights was basically made in order to come out favorably for the employer. And this is, considered to be the gold standard of disability policy in the world. Everyone says like the U S is the best when it comes to disability and it's a fucking low bar. Um, let me tell you, I mean, 
it's uh, and it's entirely because when this law was proposed, you know, the idea was that disabled people would be liberated by being enfranchised into capitalism. Um, and I think if anything, you know, maybe in the last 30 years, some of us have learned how wrong that was, but, um, that's still the spirit of the law really. So, you know, if we think about things like how the pandemic maybe improves labor conditions for disabled people, it's only because the pandemic normalized some of the things that were perhaps in the past considered unreasonable accommodations. Right. And like, Mm put it so that it finally was uh, advantageous to the employer to like give people what they were asking for. That's what you need, right? It's a big structural shock. They're not going to give up their fucking real estate scheme they've got going on, propping up all these offices full of people who absolutely could have worked at home for 20 years mm-hmm. just for one special constituency. It has to be like a deadly virus sweeping the nation. Yeah. For everyone to, and they're trying to take it back now. Like they're trying to mm-hmm. still make everybody go back in and do it. It's just the veil has been pierced in this way where like uh, the cultural consensus on this is like, we all kind of know you don't have to go work <laughs> at the Chase Bank anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you could do this at your house. You just have Eric Adams driving around going like, everyone oh needs to leave their home. Yeah, the you want to open the asylums again. If we're not careful, Eric Adams is going to have us all podcasting from upstate New York soon. Oh boy. The, co- the compromise is like, we'll send armed thugs to go make you do it. <laughs> we know it doesn't make sense. So here's a good reason for you. Um, yeah, I mean, it's so fucked up. Yeah, well, okay, so clearly we have a good picture here of, like, the ADA yeah. being this, like... Sorry, um, I got majorly in the weeds on that one. No, no, that the weeds is what we're here for. This is all very interesting. Um, but I wanted to kind of bring it so back around from that to... Right, This that's where we're at. That doesn't... ADA doesn't work. It's, like, clearly <laughs> this libertarian-modeled thing that's, uh, you know, sides of the employer. Uh, this is all happening because of the mode of production that we currently live in and how horrible it is and everything. But what's the goal? What is health communism? Like what's the, uh, where, where are we, are we, are we proposing a plan here in this book or are we just laying out philosophically, you know, how we got here? Well, we definitely, it's not, the book's not a plan for sure. I mean, I think, uh, it has to be a big book. It would have to be like, at least like, yeah, like, like a Silmarillion at least. Longer. But, you know, the thing is, is that before we can even have a plan, like, we have to get on the same page. And a lot of the stuff that we talk about in the book are not things that are necessarily well known. I mean, there's a long history of, like, health um, on the left being considered kind of like a an intro topic, maybe like an on-ramp to left organizing in some way. But I think what we're really asking people to do is to start thinking a little bit differently about what role healthcare exactly plays in our lives. And part of the reason why I think there hasn't been um, any kind of moment, let's say in the last 200 years, where uh, in, in the U.S. we've had like a really robust critique of exactly how capital instrumentalizes health it's because so often this is captured sort of within the realm of medical authority and expertise right so it's the kind of thing that you know we tell people you can know like you know 
your experience as a patient or whatever, and that that is your experience, but that that's not knowledge, right? Like medical knowledge is something that comes from a university and that is sort of sanctioned within that way. But, you know, the, the, the truth is, is that um, I think patients know better than anyone else just exactly what the values and priorities that are orienting our healthcare system are. And so much of them are towards sorting workers from non-workers, taking people who, uh, you know, are maybe not as productive, trying to make them into more productive workers. And this is something that we all have to sort of consent to, but that, you know, I think, you know, we're in right now a system of production where one of the main forms of coercion is to be forced to submit to this, but it's not necessarily something that I think unless you necessarily spend a lot of time trying to pull these threads, like it, it's not something that's a huge conversation on the left. I mean, again, we had like a very serious conversation about if we could afford to get rid of private insurance, like amongst the alleged so-called, you know, people who called themselves leftists um, in 2020. And yeah. that's like, that's I, the kind of conversation that uh, Artie and I really don't think that we have time for, nor do we feel like there's really room for like discussion in, in like the left for like whether or not we need to be nice to private insurance companies. And I think really this book is trying to like be, I don't know, I hate using like the word like be a lens, but you know, it's like, I want I want people to like learn what got me to where I'm at now and to be able to learn those same things and like take it back to whatever they're doing. Cause like the way that plan towards health communism happens is that health communism has to be the goal first. So if anything, this book is like what health communism fucking isn't <laughs> right. Fair. Yeah, no, I mean, that's kind of what uh, jumped out at me while I was reading this that I thought was pretty interesting was like, um, you know, you think about the last couple of election cycles and like Medicare for all being this thing that was like just just the farthest like imaginable thing beyond the pale for so many Americans. And it's barely like a reform really on this concept mm -hmm. and how... Uh, but it was really radicalizing. It was like a weird middle point that like sort of led people into thinking, wait, if you can think about this this way, maybe you can think about all these other aspects of society and go a little bit further into into the pale and like out into the the outside of the realism that we live in and stuff like that. But like the the actually breaking down like what health is and how it was constructed historically through capitalism and stuff like that. Um I don't know that 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 seems like an admirable goal for this book. I think I think it's really interesting. I, I I really like that you talked about the idea of medical professionalism being this thing that like just works into this concept that people buy into. Because I think about that a lot with um, <clears throat> psychology and psychiatry and mm -hmm. stuff. Because I that's what I studied when I was in college a long time ago, and I just at the experience I had like learning about how all of these. Um, antidepressants and stuff like that that are currently like the gold standard that are like things that everyone puts a lot of faith into were just sort of thrown at a wall you know come up with randomly and then sold uh the, the thing that's always bothered me is the, the the incredible amount of faith people have in just someone standing in a white lab coat and going trust me i'm <laughs> holding a beaker i've decided that your brain is broken and this pill fixes it 
um, and now you are healthy. And that's that, like that concept again of just like, wait, well, what is that? What is healthy? What is normal? You know? Um, I don't know. Like that seems like it's all connected together in this idea. So I guess I didn't mean to ask you like what the plan is so much as what the, <laughs> what the state of, <laughs> uh, of health communism is, I guess if communism is like the, you know, the, the abolition of private property or something, you know, along those lines, like what, what, how does, what does health communism look like as opposed to where we're at right now? Well, it's the abolition of health as an economy. Um, it's the abolition of austerity models of care. And it's, I think, looking at care, not as a tool of coercion. I mean, particularly talking about what you're, you're talking about in the context of mental health care, psychiatry, um, biopsychiatry in particular, um, I think it's rejecting our very carceral approach to mental health care that uh, paints people um, with mental health diagnoses as being some sort of fundamental, um, you know, like ontological threat to the safety of society, um, to the normality of society. And I think we kind of treat these ideas right now um, as naturalized as like totally normal or kind of like the way things should be. I mean, a law of nature almost. And part of the reason that is, um, and I know that like using this word sometimes like riles people up, but like one of the reasons why we think that it's um, normal, right, for some sort of survival of the fittest system to exist is because of the American eugenics movement and because of the ideas that they popularized, which were essentially that like we couldn't afford to give everyone all the care they needed because if we did, it would threaten the survival of future society. Um, so I think that kind of framework, taking that idea of like giving people the care they need, whether that's access to drugs that we currently um, criminalize or access to care that we currently charge $300,000 a dose for, um, that essentially that the point of that care becomes oriented around improving the person's quality of life, making them feel like a person, and not towards either making them, you know, quote unquote, more normal, safer, whatever, or a better, more uh, productive worker, you know, what our priorities are when we study drugs is influenced by capitalism. So, you know, when we look at what drugs are effective mental health interventions, for example, you cannot separate what's considered effective from the values of what capital capitalism says, like, are the criteria of a good worker, right? Like someone who doesn't question authority, somebody who is willing to prioritize their boss over their family or their friends or whatever, you know, the, or over their physical health, right? Like, and so these ideas that exist um, as kind of natural, like if anything, um, health communism is looking at those kinds of structures that uh, oppress us and also, you know, keep care locked within this profit model. And it's saying that those are not natural, but that those are functions and tools of power of the state. It's a much less, you know, obvious kind of disciplinary tool than maybe the police, but it's still a really important way that the population is disciplined and that 
also political dissent is kept um, in line because the kind of thing like, you know, fucking off to go like do mutual aid, right? Like if all of our healthcare was taken care of, um, we would be, I think, a lot more able to uh, engage in projects in our free time. We wouldn't feel as beholden to the kinds of demands of our bosses. You know, so many sick people that I know, like, work in the shitty conditions that they do because their employer, like that employer covers their uh, plan or their plan covers their medicine or whatever. And just the idea of switching is like so fucking stressful that they're like, whatever, I'm going to stay at this shitty job because switching is worse. Right. So like if we think about Medicare for all in one way, it's a tiny reform that only changes the payer. But at the end of the day, what it does is it gives everyone in the United States collective bargaining rights over their uh, their healthcare plan, right? And that's a fundamentally terrifying thing to the United States. That's a terrifying thing to people in power. They absolutely would never want to give workers that much power, let alone people who are not workers. You know, people who are not workers in the eyes of the U.S. state do not deserve shit. Um, we are a, a country that's built around, you know, building up taxpayers uh, as the kind of reified kind of archetype of like what we should all aspire to be. Um, and health communism would be essentially saying, fuck all that. Like we're orienting this towards other things and that those ideas only exist because they have been built up through things like medical authority, through things like, you know, the socialization of, of, of medicine and the role that um, health plays in work and being healthy plays in getting hired. I mean, just think of like how you get ready for like a job interview. You like brush your hair, you try and look better and healthier than you usually are to put on a good impression, right? Like there's this kind of framework of, I think, health that exists as this biological fascist fantasy that, um, you know, really does underlie so many things, partially because it ties in so much to the values of racism and colonialism and empire. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, health communism is saying that those things are like decisions and not laws of nature. Totally. Um, I think we'll probably run out of time here a little bit. Um, anything else we should get into right before we bounce? Uh, it was a, I don't want to get on my soapbox too because I, I really appreciate the way you framed the madness chapter. Like, um, I mean, I, I'd love to hear your soapbox, honestly. Uh, well, yeah, we I, just have so many episodes on the soapbox already. <laughs> <laughs> They're Maybe. really great. You got to check out the eugenics episode, that's an old classic. Yeah, check out our U oh, eugenics. Come on, we'll, we'll do like five minutes or something. Okay, well, yeah, I, uh, the, 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 um, like what you're saying about like uh, madness and and the way this has been sort of you know this idea that everything is I, I think really redounds to is uh, normality and how we naturalize you know this uh, the opposite of whatever thing we're trying to you know weed out of people or classify people as and I feel like um, and I get into some trouble with some people here but like you know, to not to make this the Anders Lee show. Well, I guess it is at this point, but uh, I, you know, I was diagnosed with autism as a little kid, but I don't, I, my question has always been, what is it? 
what is what what is autism and i can't i still have yet to really hear a cogent answer other than like what it's not and that that the what it's not is always changing because both of these things are always always changing um and you know there's a tendency to want to like naturalize both of these things as like it's like a trans historical phenomenon being autistic there were you know autistic people hundreds of years ago is what a lot of people say but it, it's i think historically contingent um mm-hmm. and you know i th- the the heart of the matter i think is that there's no such thing as like a normal person cognitively right no no definitely not and and you're absolutely right that uh historically that pathology is just that it's a diagnostic category and the meaning changes um from decade to decade and dsm to dsm and um you know the the idea um that i think a lot of us have who are people who are labeled or who have diagnoses so often is to sort of form groups and communities around our diagnostic categories around these different taxonomies that we're given um and, you know, I think that's where the idea of the surplus class becomes really important because it offers a way to find that same kind of solidarity that is not using the master's tools. You know, it's mm. not using taxonomy in order to dictate who should be in solidarity with who who else, right? Like, and I think part of that is that, you know, I, I consider myself disabled not because the state has certified me disabled. I think it would definitely be like in spite of that almost because the amount of work required to get certified, right? And the kinds of things that go into who counts as being disabled and who doesn't um, have nothing to do with what I politically believe to be a disabled identity under capitalism. So, you know, if, if we think about pathology as destiny, right, then that starts to make us wonder about, I think, what the sort of meaning of different symptoms are. And what is more important is, you know, do we have anything that can, I don't know, like make symptoms feel better? Um, And can taxonomy be used instead of labeling and separating people as a kind of shorthand for getting people access to services? Definitely. But as it exists now, it doesn't work that way. It's supposed to, but it works more as a way of marking people as different, marking them as non-valuable, keeping them out of certain places, keeping them into certain places, right? You know, and so I think, you know, a lot of these too, these ideas of, of who we are based on what our diagnoses are, it's frustrating because a lot of those come also from insurance billing codes, you know, Mm. what counts as autism is not necessarily uh, intrinsically what is the autistic embodied experience of the world, but it's what counts as something insurance companies will recognize as either being a symptom of autism or something that could be done to quote unquote cure it or mitigate it or treat it, right? And so important in, in, I think, if you are someone who like, has one of these identities is is if you're thinking of like what health communism can do it can give you a way of sort of embracing your identity as surplus without feeling like you're under the thumb of the pathology that's been imposed upon you by like insurance billing regimes and the needs of the capitalist system on its workforce well said yeah 
I'm I agree. I'm marking Anders as valuable to this podcast <laughs> right now. You are, uh, what's the opposite? You're a deficit to us, Anders. Anders I'm is both. An, is really an essential both. worker, and I'm clapping for him. <laughs> I'm banging my pans out the window for Anders every day at five. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. God, remember that. All right. Um, Throwback. Uh, yeah. Everybody should read Health Communism. Check it out. There's a lot we didn't even get into. Uh, really interesting stuff. Thank you, Beatrice Adler Bolton, for joining us. Let our listeners know where they can find the book and all your stuff. Thanks so much. Yeah. Um, you can order the book from Verso. I think now it's like currently only 15 bucks if you pre order it before it comes out. After nice. it comes out, I think it gets more expensive. So definitely uh, worth it to try and get it on sale because it's a hardcover. But um, yeah, I mean, if you're interested in reading the book, first time authors like Artie and I, you know, it's it's hard because nobody, uh, you're not proven yet. And we're writing a book called Health Communism. So if you're interested and you want to check it out, like, uh, we would appreciate that. And we'd love to hear what you think. And uh, Death Panel, right? Yep. Hell yeah. We do two episodes a week and. I just got to search death panel wherever you look for podcasts. You can find it. You don't have to listen to podcasts. Search for your local death panel. All right. Thank you, Beatrice. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. Bye. This is the new track from Eve 6. I learned so much about health back there, and I'm ready to take a stand. Anders Lee's also here. Anders Lee here. Still. Hey, everybody. All right. It's um, an hour and 10 minutes into the show. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is the end. This is like an hour 30, I think. Um, Holy shit. Yeah, no, we're. This is an app. What are we. Uh, That's an app. I guess there was one more thing we were talking about that's related to health, as long as we're doing the health up. Um, well, what was this? You said there was like a study that came out or something about serotonin. Was oh, there a new study? I've A couple articles have come across my desk. Did about, I miss the latest study? <laughs> well, I, I think doctors are starting to admit that they have known for a long time um, that serotonin levels don't necessarily have anything to do with depression. Um, there are like five main neurotransmitters is it all about midichlorians that's one of them okay that's the one that makes you a jedi it's about which organs you grow yeah okay if you yeah. don't grow the right ones all right well tell first. me the serotonin thing he was kind of a jedi the way he wore that cloak yeah so uh there's like there's like a handful of the main neurotransmitters that regulate everything about your central nervous system and it's like a vast oversimplification to be like Dopamine is the happy one. Mm -hmm. Serotonin is like the good times one. You know, like adrenaline. You know you be sleeping when the serotonin <laughs> hits. <laughs> yeah. Norepinephrine is like adrenaline. Like the way like colloquially like adrenaline is thought of is like this thing that pumps See the into thing your is brain. if it gets more complicated than this I will not be able to follow these important <laughs> it's inhibitors or whatever. Five things or whatever, like a handful of things and the vast amount of ways you can feel are in that like a combination of those five. It's crazy. It was crazy to over oversimplify what's happening. Right. Mm. But it's also like advantageous to capital. It sells a lot of pills to like make these commercials where there's a little sad cloud. And he's like, I don't have enough 
dopamine. Oh, I can't rain because my dopamine's not right, and all the other clouds make fun of me. Yeah, I until need- I got blossophil. <laughs> so, like, what? Serotonin. I'm a cloud. My dick doesn't work. <laughs> 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 yeah, they should make a fucking Viagra commercial of the little the cell, clouds. The little Zoloft My guy. cloud partner and I have an understanding that this is still what's best for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, here's how serot- here's how SSRIs work, right? So uh, one of the one of the neurotransmitters in your central nervous system, serotonin. Uh, basically, the way it works the way it was transmitted from like cell to cell along your nerves is that there are these things called axons and the way they describe axons in like bio psych is that it's like a train car. If you're in like the New York transit system. Right. Um, and like, you know, there's these little doors in between them. Thank you for New Yorking this analogy for us. <laughs> That's where most of our listeners Let's say you're off to it, see the Mets. <laughs> is it a local? Is it an express? It's the G train. Okay. It's the worst. Oh. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's little doors in between the trains. Like if you're sure. in one. I'm terrified to use those, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's you're outside all of a sudden. Yeah. So you are serotonin, right? You're in the G, you're in, you're in the back a car of the G train. Sure. You need to get to the front car of the G train because someone took a shit in the back one and you're like, oh my God, I thought there were going to be all these free seats in here. Why did I think that the world had blessed me with a free train car? Someone took a shit in here. This happens all the time when I'm serotonin. (laughs) (laughs) So you go to the next one by going in between those two. You open the door, you step out (laughs) in between the two cars and then you open the next door and go in, right? Mm -hmm. So what SSRIs do, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, is that some of the serotonin that steps out into the outside of the cars, that's like where your blood and shit is, doesn't get allowed back into the next car. So it, uh, it inadvertently kind of floods your system with a bunch of extra serotonin. And the argument is, well, it wasn't getting that. It's supposed to get some of it. But for whatever reason, you had an imbalance and you weren't getting it. So it hacks your central nervous system into leaking serotonin out of these little microtransactions that happen between train cars. And this happens like a bazillion times a second as you know your nerves work and stuff like yeah. that. And that's like wildly experimental. And they also just all came up with these drugs while like trying to make like a, a cure for restless leg syndrome or whatever. Yeah. And then <laughs> the leg keeps shaking like, like, like Viagra. So then they came up with while they were trying to create like a blood thinner for like right. heart disease yeah. and shit like that. Like it's all, they all everything comes up with everything has come up with on accident. Yeah. All modern drugs were invented in an experiment to kill just Japanese people in 1935. <laughs> Basically. So. You know, then they kind of found that when they tested this stuff on probably some mental patients that were just laying around in a facility somewhere in this horrible system, they were throw it at them or whatever. Or they tested it on people for money or something weird like that. I've done those tests. I know it exists. Um, you know, that it improved like the symptoms of what is what is diagnosed as depression, which is all itself only a set of diagnoses, mm-hmm. you know. And then from there went all right, label it, Put a, make a cartoon commercial, chop it up. This is going to make us a bazillion dollars by selling this stuff. Draw me a cloud. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you know, and for a lot of people, it, it fucking works, which is I listen, I'm fine with using drugs to regulate your mood. I do it all the time, yeah. you know, but I, it's being sold at not as self-regulation as a drug in that way. It's being sold, you know, through this idea of like health and and uh non-health mm-hmm. right and like this is you know being sold people put a lot of faith in it 
And, and also not to mention the people who are just giving it out because they make money from it. Right. To people that like it isn't working for. Or right. Whatever. Or they just probably don't need it in the first place. Yeah. So like I that is always I studied that when I was in college. It's always been wildly apparent to me because I'm like, what, what, what do you mean? Like the study came from nowhere. No one knows what this fucking is. They're lying to you in the commercial or whatever. The um, mucinex man has been lying to me. <laughs> that's somebody else's war to fight. I didn't study mucus. Uh, I hope somebody else is out there doing that. He doesn't talk like that. <laughs> There's like weird shit they it's discovered. Alex's from, doctor actually. Is a mucinex guy. <laughs> they discovered at one point that they're like most of the serotonin that's in the human body is in the stomach, and they were just like, what is that mean you yeah. know because it Cause also you're so happy in there well because it, it's like one of those things that does different things in different parts of the body so right. in the stomach it's the thing that helps like your you know how you unconsciously move food throughout your system all day like you're oh, not yeah thinking about that yep that's serotonin doing that or whatever that motherfucker <laughs> which might be the problem you have alex yeah i've got low serotonin <laughs> you're a cloud i'm up late night my cloud is fucked up eating a sandwich I um, remember, yeah i mean it's personal experience a little bit i you know 10 years ago did uh ssrs for the first time and they like worked too good like they i had like no anxiety and it was actually like a problem like i was just an idiot <laughs> was just like, getting hit by cars well, I was just, yeah <laughs> you're a sociopath <laughs> basically and but i, I made a million dollars it was a problem <laughs> <laughs> but i felt like more depressed so i went off them and then i started taking them again a few years later and they now they do nothing we like absolutely nothing. So I have given up because the, also because of insurance, like every fucking year or two, I have to start the process all over again. And the body of a clown must change by nature. It's true. They should do clowns instead of clouds. They should do clowns instead of clouds. <laughs> yeah. oh, actually, we all know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, that would because, be a cool antidepressant commercial. Just a clown bawling his eyes out <laughs> in like a dark room in black and white. And then like, but then my doctor told me about news. <laughs> and juggling or whatever, whatever cloud they're getting in the small car because they're, everything is normal again. Well, yeah. the thing about the SSRIs is the clown isn't too happy or sad. Now he's just like a wine mouth clown. Like it's like a tight lipped clown getting yeah. into his car. Most of them just numb you out. Which yeah, is right. like a, a temporary solution for sure. And but anecdotally, a lot of people doing this are like depressed from their li- like uh, lifestyle from their office job. Exactly. Yeah, they are sitting in a chair all day, which makes them depressed, and then they take this thing that makes you a little bit in the middle. Right. Right. They're so that's they're all this is advantageous to capital because it just keeps numbing you to the. Uh, the, the byproducts of the situation that it has created and then been like, see, and then we came up with a solution. It's like a huge head fuck, right? Yeah. This stuff would ne- nobody ever, that's what Mark Fisher talks about. Nobody ever asks like why mm-hmm. this problem exists to begin with. If you know, it's easy to kind of imagine that it like comes naturally from the situation that capitalism puts you in. Right. Kind of like we we're talking about earlier. Like, you know, there's, there's two kinds of people depressed and not depressed. And, you know, you got to learn how to... Depressed people got to go. (laughs) Chris Rock. Yeah. (laughs) Let's move on from that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, that's a four-hour podcast. (laughs) Yeah, let's get the fuck out of here. So much to say about my ailments. I don't know. Health was a good topic. we, We were... You know, abundant with ideas today. Right. Round of applause, everyone. Body is reality, man. Health is everywhere. Truly. Truly. Health is everywhere. Well, who among us is everywhere doing their shows this week? 
Oh, you can come see us do our performance art where we rip organs out of our guts and show them to you and tattoo them. You can. No no dates listed for that. <laughs> you know that movie, the, Coming up. The guy in that movie would have to like plug those shows. Yeah. Like, Come on out to Pete's candy store. I'm gonna be <laughs> I gotta grow some growing something. You can you can see me at the Brooklyn Comedy Collective growing <laughs> a fourth kidney. <laughs> then my wife fucking tears that shit out of me. <laughs> I've been booked at the funny bone. I don't, th- I don't think they know what they're in for, though. Yeah, I, I'm growing a funny bone. You're going to laugh. You're going to laugh tonight, everybody. Uh, fuck. Uh, I don't think I have anything. I'm open. Actually, I think this next Wednesday at... Fuck, I'm going to mispronounce this in a bad way. Fredo's uh, Bar Fredo or something in Ridgewood. Uh, I think I'm going to open for this band called Fixation. It's an uh, anti-Italian cool. slur. To like nine... Come at yeah. eight. Get it early. There's like a bunch of bands and shit. It's tricky what kind of show you're going to because like at a comedy show, it's usually expected that it like will start on time. But for a music show, it's like, yeah, we're going to be hanging out for three hours. So make sure you're before I start because then I'm only on for 10 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It's a different vibe. Just come here. I watch a show. Music's cool. It's cool. Music uh, is cool. I have a show tonight. So <laughs> that's not going to help you. Thank you for coming to it <laughs> retroactively. Yeah, it's so dope. I plugged it last week. Yeah, it's so and you were there. Look that so up. I thank you. Look that up, and Wait. also you already went to. It. <laughs> I might put this up right now. Oh really? Okay. But it's still still. By the person. time they get to the end of it, just think about this logic. <laughs> yeah. All right. Just follow Andrew's Twitter, and he'll put it up on there. At Andrew's Lee here. There you go. There you go. Um, I'm not doing anything too exciting. Go to my Twitter at Patak Test Kitchen. P T A K Test Kitchen. I got a new podcast where we read Quora's. Uh, mostly to figure out like what what the fuck's going on on Quora. If you like medical questions, you're gonna love the Quarators podcast. <laughs> they email me like every day. Like, who would we're, win in a fight, the Hulk or Superman? We're like, mostly just reading the emails so far. Okay. Uh, there's no guests yet or anything. It's just me and Jeremy Kaplowitz reading Quora's. <laughs> uh, we're the number forty one comedy podcast in Ukraine this week. Nice. We're making a deciding factor for the heroes of Ukraine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the war is turning. A bunch of Nazis listening to your podcast, asking Quora questions. It's funny for whites like me. The final Quora. <laughs> I like this half-Jewish podcast a lot. Uh, yeah, check that out. That's just started, so that's fun. And uh, that's all I have for now. Um... Oh, the new Eve Six album is out. You should buy, listen to that and buy it and stuff, and yeah. and look at the beautiful photograph. Buy vinyl the album cover and stare into Jake's eyes while you go to sleep. There's a shirt too. It's like of me wearing another shirt. It's real weird. That's really confusing. All right, it's finished. Body is reality. <laughs> Anders, do the noise. Oh God! Why did you? <laughs>